Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Good for you. This is the first episode of Lent Term 2020. Well done for sticking with us after the long Christmas break and industrial action at the end of last term. Thanks for listening to the 25th instalment in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. As you may have seen from the episode runtime, this week's is quite a long interview, but it's a really engaging and entertaining one, so I'll try to keep the introduction short. I'm still Lewis DeFrates, I'm still a third year PhD student at Sydney Sussex College, and today I'll be talking to Professor Peter Mankell, who is Harmsworth Visiting Professor of American History at the University of Oxford for the academic year 2019-2020, to and is also the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of the Humanities, Professor of History and Anthropology at the University of Southern California. Peter is a historian of early modern America and the vast Atlantic world, with a focus on imperial encounters. Peter has written quite a lot of books, including Valley of Opportunity, Economic Culture Along the Upper Susquehanna, 1700 to 1800, that's published in 1991, Hacklet's Promise, and Elizabethan's Obsession for an English America in 2007, Nature and Culture in the Early Modern Atlantic, out on the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018, and most recently, The Trials of Thomas Morton, an Anglican lawyer, his Puritan foes, and the Battle for a New England, which was published by Yale University Press either in November or sometime last week, depending which side of the Atlantic you're on. He's also written a bunch of journal articles, including some co-written with The Economists Thomas Weiss and Joshua L. Rosenblum, which are mentioned briefly during our interview. And in 2012, he delivered the Mellon Distinguished Lectures in the Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania, developing some of the content from those lectures into his book, Nature and Culture in the Early Modern Atlantic. He is currently working on what will be the first volume of the Oxford History of the United States, tentatively titled American Origins. The paper that Peter presented to the Cambridge American History Seminar is titled The Origins of the American Economy. He spoke to me about that paper and much more both around and besides that on Monday afternoon. So Peter, thanks very much for talking to me today. Uh, Could you tell us what the paper is about? Uh, Lewis, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to be in Cambridge. Uh, The paper I'm doing today at the American Seminar is called The Origins of the American Economy. Uh, Most people, when they think about the American economy, think about the United States. And if they think about having an earlier economy that is pre-1776, they start at 1607. In fact, the standard book in the field on the economy of British America starts in 1607. Mm-hmm. My paper today is really saying that that's not quite the story, certainly not the story that I understand. We have to start much earlier to really understand how the American economy developed. And in the paper today, I developed four sort of core ideas uh, illustrated through case studies, talking about aspects of the American economy, all of which predate 1607, and all of which I argue uh, shape what comes after 1607. Okay, and could you talk us briefly through uh, these case studies and perhaps yeah, the key concepts that you develop through each one of them respectively? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the first, uh, the first case study revolves around agriculture, and it's the spread of maize, or what the United States called corn agriculture, which moved north from Mexico uh, up the Mississippi Valley, and it produced a fantastic civilization in a place called Cahokia, modern East St. Louis um, Uh, a town that at the time some archaeologists argue was larger than London um, and in which the ability to produce corn in this incredibly fertile land, still some of the most fertile farmland in the world, enabled the population uh, to grow. And by having a population grow, it developed a city 
and within that city it develops certain cultural uh, productions. And so from agriculture, you, we sort of see in what becomes the United States the origins of something we recognize as a modern economy. So agriculture was my first uh, case study based on Cahokia. Mm-hmm. My second case study, and they each boil down to uh, really a simple word or phrase. Uh, my second case study is really about appropriation. And I use the example of what's going on in Hispaniola, and then Hispaniola is sort of the Caribbean writ large, uh, to talk about the European appropriation, first of indigenous lands and then mm-hmm. of indigenous bodies. Yeah. And so the second of these things is how do Europeans come to understand, come to claim uh, both the land that they want, and then the labor to work that land. And this would eventually develop into a system of slavery. Right. The third of these sort of simple concepts, again, which I illustrate with a, a simple case, third of these con- concepts I refer to as sort of acquisition. Uh, the idea that many Europeans had that North America was there to serve their their commercial appetites. Yeah. Um, and so I use the Canadian fur trade, or what becomes the Canadian fur trade, to to explore this, to explore the idea that American nature, uh, as Europeans come to understand it, was like a, uh, a marketplace for Europeans. And that idea becomes embedded very early, and it helps explain why a lot of European travel accounts include an enumeration of what can be extracted from nature. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth of these areas that I talk about has to do with what I call the knowledge or information economy. And it's, it's the, idea, the idea that I'm trying to develop here, that it's not just that Europeans learn about sort of what's, not just that the United States or North America can produce certain goods, but it's how Europeans came to learn about them. And they learn about them through the circulation of travel narratives, through printed books, through mouth-to-mouth oral communication, through manuscripts. But they basically learn this becomes an economic part of an economy. You know, we tend to think that economic systems are, you know, here's an opportunity and people pursue it. Yeah. But there is this very important middle ground there, which is how do people know what is there? How do people know what exists, how much labor it takes to produce something, and how then to move, in this case, move that good from one place to another? So in the case of Colonial North America, it's Europeans coming to understand what exists where, how they're going to extract that material, get it from this, uh, transport it across the Atlantic Ocean. And it becomes part of a system that provides sort of the intellectual and ideological underpinning for conquest and colonization. Right, okay. I guess building off of that, um, to what extent do you think that these four case studies you give and the processes you talk about, to what extent are they cumulative? As in, to what extent does one build off of what happened in a previous encounter, for instance? That's a great question. They're all cumulative. So I mean, I start with agriculture because it it sets me back to about the turn of the first Christian millennium, Mm -hmm. about a thousand or so years ago. And that's very important because even though Cahokia itself disperses in the 13th century, maize agriculture disperses through much of North America, especially through the Southeast and then up into the Northeast, what's now the United States, uh, where Mississippian peoples went. So everything that happens in Cahokia sets up what happened to those other places because by the time I'm talking about these other economies, in the mainland at least, maize agriculture is already firmly in place. The others, you know, when I talk about what happens uh, in the West Indies, for example, is also cumulative because what happens in 1492 when Columbus shows up and then follows when he gets back and the circulation of his first report. 
what follows there is this idea that here is a world that Europeans didn't know about before. In some sense, that's technically not true. We know that the Norse had been to North America earlier, right. but their explorations never really led to, certainly never led to wide-scale conquest and colonization. But what happens in 1492 and then what follows is this idea that here is this new place. And it's not just sort of a place that Europeans didn't know about. It's a place, and we see this from Columbus's first statement of his so-called discovery, from the very first statement he says, I found this place and I took possession of it. Right. You know, setting up what comes next. So that then sets up the next of these economies, this extractive economy, taking wealth out of the Americas. Right. So the fur trade is a classic example of extracting wealth from North America without really paying attention to the consequences for the indigenous peoples who are there. And then all three of these things then set up the, and form the foundations of this knowledge or information economy. Right. It is based on the spread of information about these different economies and then bringing in new things as Europeans go to areas they also didn't know before, those become part of the same sort of expanding network of knowledge about North America. So it's not, it, it's so your question is so on, on target because it is in fact the accumulation of these things, you know, the spread of certain ideas, yeah. agriculture and those things, so that allows then colonization to go forward. Right, okay even as they take place across what is quite a large... A vast, a vast yeah. amount. Of and part of it, so as a historian of North America, which mm -hmm. is what I am, and I'm primarily a historian of English North America, and more specifically encountering Native Americans and Europeans, I am looking at territory that obviously brings in other European peoples. In fact, one of the examples I give in the paper has to do with the French exploration of the St. Lawrence Valley. One of the examples I give in the, in the paper is about the Spanish showing up in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. These boundaries, these intellectual boundaries that we have now that so rigidly demarcate the history of the United States, yeah. American history, as it's called in the United States, from, say, the history of Canada, history of Mexico, the history of the West Indies, Peru, you know, is an artificial modern construction. Yeah. And we have to do what we can to really get back at it. And so when I'm talking to people about that, you know, and I say, okay, let's just talk about the English for one minute, right? Let's think. We think... Right. We think, I'm an American historian, you're an American historian. Yeah. We think American history, we could argue whether it begins in Jamestown or not. But that's sort of what we think. And we think, okay, it developed and you got these 13 colonies, right? Makes sense. We for, By the time of the revolution. We forget that at the time of the revolution, the most profitable colony the English have is Jamaica. We forget that in the 16th and early 17th centuries, to the English looking at the Western Hemisphere, Getting through the North was the most important thing to someone like, like Henry Hudson, who makes four efforts to find the Northwest Passage. And when Raleigh goes sailing up the Orinoco, it's because he is convinced that Peru is the future. These things that we have, this what becomes successful 13 colonies, in fact, is a narrowing of the range of possibilities that existed in the 16th and early 17th centuries. Okay. I suppose relating to that and kind of expand, expanding this like conceptual uh, terrain, you talk about your paper taking readers from the kinds of, quote, quantifiable data that economists prefer to use and into a world of uh, physical objects analysed by archaeologists, linguistic patterns and oral histories, as well as visual images from the Age of Encounters. Could you give some examples of the objects you look at? And to what extent do you think that this broader uh, conceptual approach that you're taking is enhanced by this yeah. Another terrific question. So some of the examples, and in fact, I'm going to start my paper today by showing some slides to give people a visual sense of the things that I'm talking about. So I will show some pictures of 
archaeological uh, artifacts that have been f- dug up uh, at Cahokia um, um, from um, jewelry to fish hooks to various kinds of things. Um, items which are produced by um, a non-European but just a sophisticated civilization, like a very different civilization. But civilization is the crucial thing. These are not primitive people running around in the woods, right? These are people who have different civilizations and different cultures, but they're there. And archaeology helps us reconstruct that. Economists, the, the, the underlying bias of the study of economics is, is that it's, if you can't quantify it, it's hard to know how, what it means. Mm-hmm. So we've known for a long time that there's all sorts of exchange that is not essentially quantifiable, right? So the idea of the gift, which Marcel Mauss wrote about in 1925, and Natalie Zeman Davis wrote a famous book about the gift. Yeah. We know the gift exchange was common, but we tend to sort of, we, we, that is in the academy, tend to sort of say, well, that's something maybe anthropologists should talk about, right? I think it's something that economists need to talk about, right? It's 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 the similar, it's about the exchange of goods and services. So some of those archaeological goods you can find at Cahokia, or I, I'll show a couple of slides today, of what was found in Hispaniola, just to give some sense of the material world that Europeans encountered when they encountered these civil, Taino civilization in that case. I'm going to show some pictures primarily from the 16th century, uh, created mostly, some of them by European artists who never saw the Western Hemisphere, but who create images of it based on travelers' reports, on what they heard, from the Corte Real brothers uh, to Cartier and Roberval, who go up in St. Lawrence Valley. Uh, and I'm going to show... Uh, a few pictures from a fantastic manuscript at the Morgan Library in New York, uh, which we call the Drake Manuscript, although it's not about Drake. Its proper name is the Eastward Natural Days in the Natural History of the Indies, a series of small watercolor images uh, that, that depict, among other things, economic activity. They also depict nature. I'm not going to show those pictures today. And then I'm going to show some pictures from um, a visit by an English artist named John White, who goes to the place we call Roanoke in 1585, the Outer Banks of Carolina. Yeah. Uh, and those paintings, those watercolors, become very famous when they're engraved five years later by Theodore de Bry in Frankfurt. And those become the defining images, not just for the English, but for many, Ameri- many Europeans when they think about North America. That was the first book, more or less simultaneously produced in four different languages, English, French, uh, Latin, uh, and German. Uh, Latin, the language of scholars, yeah. German for the market that it's in, French, I think, probably for the Huguenot population, and English, because Harriet's report is in English. Uh, then this workshop would then go on to produce many other books. Never again would it publish in English or French. That tells us something, but I'm yeah. not sure what that tells <laughs> us. Um, so I'm going to give some examples to show these things. But one of the core issues in my career, uh, I was thinking about this as I was coming to Cambridge today, uh, my dissertation was entitled Environment and Economy. My first book, the title of it, has the words economic culture mm-hmm. in it. Uh, that, that was a study of, a place of the upper Susquehanna Valley in central Pennsylvania and New York in the 18th century. I've always been interested in understanding how peoples create economies and what, uh, what opportunities they pr- produce and what conflicts come from that as well. So I've been wrestling with sort of economic notions, or from, at least from an anthropological, if not an economics perspective, for a long time. In the mid-1990s, I started collaborating with economists, and part of the idea was how does one measure this economic activity that is not captured by our standard ways of, of accounting for behavior? So we don't have inv- inventories of estates, right? Someone today 
They, they, they spend a lifetime, they acquire various things. At the end of their life, there's, there's an accounting of it. Uh, in Britain, as in America, we pay taxes every year. There's an accounting of that. There are roles of how much your house is worth. Uh, there's, we can assess how much you know, property tax someone pays here, how much sales tax someone pays there. Uh, we can learn how much land someone has. I mean, there are lots of things which are quantifiable about the, about the present and the past. And economists love that mm-hmm. right? because it allows them to sort of move away from theory into some sort of reality. Like how, what is the allocation of scarce, of scarce resources in any society? The problem is that only takes us so far if we're talking about people who live in worlds uh, where we don't have those kind of quantifiable records that exist. So archaeologists provide us some, although it's a very imperfect record of the past, but it's better than nothing. Oral histories maintained by indigenous people, which I use in a lot of my work, um, tells us something about the ideas and attitudes about certain goods, sometimes about very specific um, goods. Visual imagery can sometimes give us a sense of the past. Right? I mean, why are Europeans who are reading these accounts of the Americas creating the visual images they are? And then what do they tell? So I'm going to show some of those today. But for, I get to give one example, I mean, to me, in retrospect, a sort of a signal example. There's a picture in the Drake manuscript. There are a couple pictures in the Drake that show people panning for gold, indigenous Caribbean peoples panning for gold. They're not identified in the manuscript, so it, but broadly in the Caribbean uh, somewhere. And then there's a picture of a European standing next to some people panning for gold. Now, the image itself is rather benign. You know, the image is sort of like, Here's this European who's fully clothed, sign of civilization to Europeans, next to these scantily clad indigenous peoples. And he's there just sort of standing there. What's going on there, of course, is something that's approaching his control over their labor. Now, whether we call that slavery or we call it something else, because we don't know what to call it because it's on the documentary evidence, the visual image does sort of suggest... um, the close proximity and already by the, this is a late 16th century image, already by then the idea that Europeans have come to control not only the physical place, but the people who work that place. So again, something not quantifiable, Mm -hmm. but something that I think reveals something about economic behavior. Yeah. Well, it seems like one of the challenges of the paper and something that I guess you try to answer is not just recovering and talking about these kind of non-quantifiable economies it's it's about talking about those in relation to what we might understand more conventionally as an economy, like cohering those two together, right? It's not just that these existed separately from how economists talk about the economy. It's that they're kind of butting up against each other through the imperial encounter. Absolutely. No, they're, they're absolutely, they're there. They're mm-hmm. not even butting up against each other. I mean, they are just there. But when we approach, I mean, the modern university is one of the great inventions of the past 500 years, right? I'm sitting here today talking yeah. to you in a 900-year-old university, right? Yeah. Fantastic. But as the university has developed uh, and as the world has gotten more crowded, people have become more, more specialized. And in order to succeed in the academic world, we master ever narrower things. Because right? we have to have the technical expertise to make the interventions that we're going to have. 
And so if you pick up the typical economics journal, even the Journal of Economic History, which has history in the title of it, or the Economic History Review, again, history in the title, a lot of what's in there is driven by something that someone was able to measure, someone was able to quantify. And so I think it's important. Economists wouldn't deny that any of what I'm talking about is economic behavior. I mean, they might just say, well, how do you measure it? And so how does, what does it mean? So in the 90s, I tried with two economists to come to, to try to measure in a super imperfect way, economic behavior. Now we were talking not about the pre-1607, but the colonial period in a series of papers. And that series of papers, we were really wrestling with uh, an idea which economic historians had in the 1990s and beyond which is that the economy of colonial British North America was among the most productive in recorded history, that a lot of wealth was generated. And one of the standard explanations for the generation of that wealth had to do with sort of European ingenuity, Europeans coming over and applying new strategies and thoughts to this great continent, right? And oftentimes, and people wouldn't say this anymore, oftentimes they would, in fact, sort of ignore that that was an already populated place. So we wanted to come through, and we wrote a paper, uh, kind of saying Tom Weiss and I wrote the first, and we, we brought in Josh Wilson, but, but Tom and I, in our first paper, we brought in a paper that we, we want to chat, we want to make two statements. One, we don't actually think the economy of British North America was as productive. We don't think that economic growth, as economists think, was really there. But second, hmm. if there was economic growth, then we believe that it was due to the transfer of land, of real estate, from indigenous peoples to Europeans. It right. wasn't that Europeans were more industrious. It was, I mean, they did have different techniques, but really it was the acquisition of land for people who were land hungry, which produced whatever wealth there is. Um, this was met with mixed, um, it's had a mixed response among economists, I think okay. I'd have to say. Okay. <laughs> um, I suppose moving and on. And I'll yeah. just give you one, one on. last thing. <laughs> my first my first book, which was about the Upper Susquehanna Valley, about economic cultures, a book called Valley of Opportunity. Um, the reviewer, I think in the Journal of Economic History, wrote in a f- fabulous phrase um, uh, that this was economic history of uncertain pedigree. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that's exactly right. And I think that was probably meant not as a compliment, mm. but I'm sort of, but I sort of took it as, yes, I think that's in fact right. Yeah, <laughs> so. it's that uncertainty that gives it a bit of power, right? <laughs> so towards the end of the paper, you mentioned that these, the encounters and the case studies you talked about uh, helped Europeans generate uh, what you call a grammar of colonization. And uh, that's a concept that you developed in your 2010 book, Hackloit's Promise. I'm not sure if you did before then as well. Well, the book came out in 2007. I think the okay. paperback came out in 2010. Oh, okay. But it, in Hackloit's Promise, I, I, I have a, a long chapter called The Grammar of Colonization. Right. Do you want me to talk about that? Could, yeah, I was going to say, could you briefly explain <laughs> the concept? So, yeah, you were ahead of me. If you, if you look at Eastern North America, or the Americas in general, one of the questions as an early American historian that is sort of just always there in the background is the Spanish got there in the 14, 1492 Columbus sales. The English are there with the Cabots in 1497. But over the course of the 16th century, the English are not doing very much in North America. That's the sort of standard view of it. Uh, now, I think that's not exactly accurate because there are things, in fact, I mentioned them in the paper, some English efforts, but they mm-hmm. tend to fail. What the English needed, one of the reasons the colonization takes off in the way that it does in the 17th century, is that English 
people, that is not elites, but English people, those people who are going to eventually get on boats and go across the Atlantic Ocean, which they do by the thousands in the 17th century, need to understand why this is a good idea. Yeah. Right? We just take it for granted. This is an old American myth. It's a land of opportunity. Anyone, anyone would want to go there. Well, that's not quite true because there are plenty of English people who don't want to go there. By the way, there are lots of other Europeans who don't want to go. There's a famous example of poor French girls, girls, not women, who just refuse to get on ships even though the French are saying, please go to New France. They're like, no, we're staying here. And French migration is very limited even though the French economy is precarious for much of the 16th and 17th centuries. The reason I have that long chapter in Hacklett's Promise is because Hacklett, I believe, becomes the most important person defining the realm of the possible. We, should, we, the English, should send colonies abroad, should send people abroad to form colonies because it's going to have a lot of advantages for us. Advantages for us as the realm, advantages for us for, uh, for the economy, and advantages for the individuals who go, and also advantages for people who stay home. By what I mean by the grammar of colonization is the working vocabulary for how people began to have that conversation in a way that convinced them to move that they weren't having that conversation 30 or 50 years earlier. So I, that's part, and it's part of really now what I would think of as this knowledge or information economy, yeah. which Hacklett plays a crucial role. In fact, the text that I use, Harriet's Brief and True Report of the Newfoundland of Virginia, Hacklett plays a central role in the production of that. Okay. It does sound like a key part of the uh, origins of America. So could you explain how this paper fits into your ongoing work uh, for the first volume of the Oxford History of the United States, yeah. respectively titled American Origins? That's a wonderful question. Yeah. So I have been uh, working on this book tentatively entitled American Origins for several years, for some years. I don't want to know how many the sum is, but let's say at least 10 years, probably more. Um, the Oxford United States is a, very, is a renowned series yeah. in which every existing book in the series covers basically a generation from from Middlecoff's book on the revolution through all of the others. And some of these are very widely read, especially by a general audience. I mean, they sort of have come to define much of what American history is, or at least they're a representation of a way of thinking about American history. It's a narrative history series, and, and that has led to certain uh, opportunities and certain limitations in it. Oxford decided that it wanted something before 1776, and it decided to divide up the colonial period, Oxford University Press, I should say, uh, divide up the colonial period. I mean, this series is very venerable. This series was thought of by Richard Hofstetter and C. Van Woodward. Right. Right? Needless to say, they are not going to see the completion of it. I hope <laughs> I see the completion of it. Each of these books is rather large. So I, my book is going to start around with Cahokia. In fact, it starts a little earlier with the Norse and it starts with some very early sort of encounters because the underlying thing of my book is really about encounters. Uh, and then it fairly quickly goes from there, skipping up to the 15th century. And from the 15th century on, it goes in, into extraordinary depth. So I, I tell people when they ask me about this book, they say, well, you know, Jamestown. And I say, well, I'll be honest with you. I have 500 pages before getting to 1607, yeah. right? And then there'll be about 500 pages from 1607 till uh, 1680, because I end with the Pueblo Revolt. There's going to be an epilogue about William Penn. But I end with the Pueblo Revolt, and I end with this fantastic uprising in this what's now the Southwest of indigenous Puebloan people saying, no, Europeans have to leave, and this incredible violence. 
That's a very decisive moment for me. And it reminds us how essentially still 200 years after Columbus, colonization is a rather precarious pursuit. Now, over the course of this, if you take, if you step back, you can see increasing European presence in North America. And because of the phenomenon that we call the Columbian Exchange, we see decreasing numbers of indigenous people. But if you stop the clock at 1680, where my book basically ends, 1680, you don't get a United States. You have an entirely different world. Mm-hmm. And part of what I'm trying to do is to recreate that sense of contingency. Yeah. How did we get to that point? And then I leave it to the others in the series. How do we get to a United States and what does it mean? So my book is going to have a huge amount about encountering Europeans and Native peoples and a lot about American nature. It's sort of trying to give sort of the natural foundations of of what will become a continental nation. Um, and then someone, if they read the whole series at some point, I can't quite imagine that because this takes up a bookshelf already and there are three to go. Right. Um, my book, I hope, will provide some sense of the physical world which people inhabited. Right, okay. I guess, that, yes, there's this sense of accumulation we were talking about earlier without a sense of inevitability. Exactly, right, because I want to, I want to squash that sense of inevitability. In fact, the, what, is, what I project now is the epilogue to my book is William Penn sailing up the Delaware River with a radically different vision, well, a somewhat different vision of colonization than those who came before. Mm. Um, and I'm ending there because I think I, it's important for readers of a series like this to come back in some sense to the English experience because the English experience dominates what, you know, essentially the Anglo-American experience dominates much of American history. Uh, And that's also my hometown. Mm -hmm. And there's actually sort of, I I, I don't know how exactly to do that, but if you've ever been to Philadelphia, where Penn comes up is only a few blocks from where the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are signed, right? I mean, these two things are actually almost in the exact same spot in this vast continent. There's something there I want to get at. I don't have it quite right yet. I'm still in the writing process, as you can tell. Uh, but that's what it's about. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it eventually. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so we've got a couple of general questions just to finish off with. Uh, Peter, what's a book or article you've read in the last 12 months that have inspired or perhaps challenged your approach? So uh, I'm going to offer uh, an unusual book. Um, uh, and it's one of the advantages of the kind of professorship I have. It's not only to come to be in Britain for the year and to go around and meet people, but it's also to get that physical distance from the United States. And so I've come over here the fall of 1919 with impeachment going on on one side of the ocean and a major political debate leading to an election on this side of the ocean. I've been reading avidly about this when I'm not thinking about the 16th and 17th centuries. And the book that I think had the biggest influence on me, the book that I talk about the most, I didn't think I'd be answering the question this way, is by the television critic of the New York Times. I'm not even going to say his name correctly, so I apologize. James Ponzuiak, I think. The book is called An Audience of One. It's a book about Trump. Not one of my favorite people. But it's not about Trump's politics. It's about how this man rose to power by mastering the medium, the media at his command, in which this, in that case, television. And it's almost sort of a technological, anthropological sort of approach. And I tell this to people and I get these blank looks like, television? Trump, hey, they don't want to read about Trump, fair enough. Although it's on the best it's all over the place. But in terms of thinking about power, it's very instructive. 
Why do some people rise to the power, to gain the power that they have? It's not obvious. In 2016, Americans were laughing at the prospect that Donald Trump would be elected president of the United States. It wasn't he would be a bad president. We thought it was ridiculous, right? But he became president, right? And we, and a lot of people have a lot of strong, no one has a weak opinion about Donald Trump. Everyone has a strong opinion. But part of it was, my thinking is, how did that happen? I'm not a 21st century political scientist. What do I know about the voters here, or the voters there, or these trends? But as a cultural phenomenon, there's something there that can tell us something about the past. Yeah. Absolutely right. Maybe we'll talk about that on the walk back over to Sydney, Sussex. Fair enough. <laughs> What's the most interesting place you've been for research? So I was thinking about that question. I was, I was sort of tossing around in my mind when I... Um, when I did my dissertation research, uh, I was trying to figure out uh, economic behavior in the upper Susquehanna Valley. And that took me into these county courthouses, county registers, uh, that I think in one case I was only the second person to ever use. And the, I was only second because the Mormons had been there first to, to microfilm things for their genealogical records. Right. I was literally blowing dust off these records, of these orphans court records and tax lists from uh, 18th century, what's now North Central Pennsylvania. I mean, not just like a little bit of dust, like dirt yeah. flying off. Uh, and then, uh, thanks to my favorite Republican politician of all time, the local register of, of deeds, he gave me a Xerox machine to use for free. So for three days, mm -hmm. I was just copying them. I thought that would be the winner to this question. Yeah. I thought, okay, that's... Then I thought, wait a minute, no. I, I, after, I wrote a book on Native American alcohol use. And after that, I got invited to New Zealand to write about Maori alcohol use. So I got to go down to New Zealand for a few months and go into their archives. And you know, before, the, before I had that fellowship, I barely knew where New Zealand was. I knew it was near Australia, but you know, I was, I was, whatever. Uh, I confess my ignorance to that. And so I did a lot to sort of figure out how Maori figured out. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to answer. But then it occurred to me, no, I have the best answer for you. Okay. About 10 years ago, I'm married to a medieval historian named Lisa Battelle. We, her, her basic training is of medieval Ireland and Britain. But we were in the south of France because she was, she was writing a book about women in, in early medieval Europe. And we go to a town in the south of France, which is halfway between Cannes and Saint-Tropez. Our kids are fairly young at the time. And um, a town called Fréjus, and they pronounce the S in the south, Fréjus. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, she wants to look at a baptismal font, you know, basically a big rock from uh, the fourth century. And so she goes and gets the key and I go in there and unlock it. And I'm thinking, this is incredibly dull. <laughs> and so, and the kids won't get out of the car. So I go back to check on the kids and they're, they're, they're fine. Um, and so I go back in and then I wander into the cloister of this church. And in the cloister of this church, I encounter... 1,300 paintings on wooden boards about, say, a foot and a half or two feet square mm. of the world as these people understood from 1354 to 1366. I ended up then soon after that having an invitation to write, to deliver uh, the first Mellon Distinguished Lectures in the Humanities at Penn, and it was going to be a book. That's my first chapter, is about those paintings. Yeah. And I say to my own graduate students, you think you know something? Go out into the field. You never know what you're going to find. Yeah. And these paintings are amazing. Now, frankly, as an American historian of the colonial period, these are 14th century French paintings. 
I wish there had been a lot of work done on them. There's actually been relatively little work done on these paintings. The town is known because it was a part of you know, Roman colonization. Uh, but these paintings, so I was, I wouldn't say I was doing the foundational research, but I think I helped make these paintings uh, more, uh, better known. Yeah. Um, so that I think was, uh, for me, in some ways the most exciting. And because they're filled with like everyday events, like here's someone in the field, here's someone fishing. There's one of two women, one uh, obviously sort of the assistant helping one woman comb her hair. And they're interspersed in these movable interlocking panels with pictures of monsters. Right. And those monsters are very important because it helped me come to thinking about this little book, which is called Nature and Culture in the Early Modern Atlantic. Think about in the 14th century, the 15th century, the 16th century, you could argue to the present. People are debating what's nature. And there's the nature that we can see, but there's also the nature we think about, which is over there. And in, to medieval Europeans, beyond out there in the realm of the monstrous races, those monsters were real. Yeah. And they're not just kind of real and isn't that kind of quirky. There are two moments in Columbus's first report when he goes to the Indies where he says, I expected to find monsters, but there were none, right? In other words, this is not just some literary fantasy, not just yeah. embellishments that you happen to see in a church illustration on a map. People believe that they were there. And so I use that as an opening. So that, whether you call a cloister with... 1,300, 14th century paintings and archive. I don't know, but that's my most interesting research experience. <laughs> yeah. I'd say that puts the other two to shame. <laughs> <laughs> and to almost literally stumble upon them as well. It's just, it, was, yeah. it was fantastic. Yeah. Well, our final question that we always close the podcast with, uh, Peter Mankell, what's your favorite album? So I had to give this some thought also. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of dug deep and I thought, okay, what is really my favorite? Not just sort of what is on my, what's my jam at the moment, what's on my playlist at the moment. Uh and I think my all-time favorite album is uh, American Beauty by the Grateful Dead. Right. Um, just a spectacular. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, uh, was going to have greetings from Asbury Park, you know, and I, was, I, I tossed around some others. But at the end of the day, uh, American Beauty, um, Exile on Main Street is amazing. Mm -hmm. But American Beauty is about as close as you can get to a perfect album. Mm -hmm. So that was, might be my answer. Were you a deadhead by any chance? Well, I won't go too far into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great point to leave it at, Peter. Thanks very much for talking to me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Liz, for having me in the studio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast with Peter Mankell and myself. Next week, we don't have a regularly scheduled seminar as Heather Thompson is going to be giving the inaugural Pitt Professor Lecture on American prison uprisings and why they matter today. If you're within travelling distance of Cambridge, why not come along? It's taking place at the Crips Auditorium at Magdalen College at 5pm on Monday the 27th of January. We're currently in the process of working out whether this lecture can be recorded and posted online as a podcast, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can listen to Professor Thompson's interview with Richard Sage from last term, available in our feed. We'll be back either next week or the one after. In the meantime, let your friends know about what we're doing here, Give us a rating and review wherever you do that type of thing. Follow us on Twitter at Comericanist and get in touch if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Cheers.